Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. I live in Southern California, Los Angeles. This is Baja Norte. If you do not speak Spanish in Los Angeles, you're missing out on a whole lot. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. And for a very limited time, LeVar Burton Reed's listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash LeVar. That's rosettastone.com slash L-E-V-A-R. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. In every episode, I handpick a different piece of short fiction, and I read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and I hope you will too. Continuing with our spring and summer live episodes, y'all, I have an incredible story for you today written by the great Nalo Hopkinson. Nalo is an acclaimed writer of science fiction and fantasy tales and now teaches science fiction at the University of California at Riverside. She has won the John W. Campbell Award, the World Fantasy Award, and Canada's Sunburst Award. She is one of our neighbors from the North, lives here with us now in the South, but... She is Canadian, y'all. Bonus points for that. She skillfully weaves, Nalo does, together elements of folk tales, myth, horror, and science fiction in her stories. The collection that I'm reading from today is entitled Skin Folk. And just a heads up, if you stay tuned after the story ends, you will get to hear my conversation on stage with Nalo from our event in Los Angeles. Now, as with all of our live episodes, I have had the opportunity to read with live musical accompaniment. I, I, I love this part of, of the tour. Today's musician is the composer and vibraphonist Justin Thomas. Justin has shared the stage with all of the greats. Think Lionel Hampton. Think Hank Jones. Think Theaster Gates. Justin also tours with Capital Cities, and the story that we perform together is entitled Money Tree. It's an incredible, immersive tale that takes place in Toronto, but calls back to Jamaican folklore. There's a river maiden and underwater riches and a complicated and difficult family dynamic, which, of course, none of us know anything about. So without further ado, if you are ready, let's take a deep breath. <sighs> And begin. Here we go. Money Tree by Nalo Hopkinson. Rio Cobre means Copper River because it used to be customary to throw bright, shiny coppers into the river as an offering to Oshon, the female deity of the waters. Silky was having dreams of deluges. 
They'd started soon after she got the news about her brother Morgan. The dreams frightened her. Mile-high tidal waves that swallowed cities. Vast masses of water shifting restlessly over drowned skyscrapers. In one nightmare, she was living in a cottage on a mountaintop. She was cooking a meal for Morgan, barbecuing fat pink prawns on an outdoor grill while she and her brother laughed and talked. Far away on the horizon was the outline of another mountain range, a wide plateau. She heard water running. It irritated her that Morgan had left a tap on. What a way that boy was lazy. She turned to tell him to go and turn it off and saw the plateau in the distance. Water was spilling over the top of it. Billions of gallons rushing over that mountain range miles away. That's what she'd been hearing. Morgan shouted, The water table! It's rising! Before Silky could stop him, he ran down the hill, yelling that he had to go and get his wallet. She knew that the flood would drown the city below, then rise to engulf her, and there was nothing she could do about it. Morgan would have called the dreams apocalyptic. He would have hauled some tatty paperback about mysticism and the psychic power of dreams off the bookshelf and launched into a speech about how she was tapping into her archetypal consciousness or something. In her mind's eye, Silky could just see his earnest expression as he tried to convince her, the eagerness that could usually make her smile ever since they were children. She made herself a cup of tea and took it to the kitchen table. She shoveled a tablespoon full of sugar from the sugar bowl into her mug. Demera, brown sugar, damp with molasses and moist as mud. The glimmering crystals swirled like chips of gold, then sank slowly to the bottom of the cup. She loved the rich taste hoarded the Demera sugar for herself. Guests could have the white. In Jamaica, it was the other way around. The costly refined sugar was for the guests, and the everyday brown sugar was cheap. Mummy would have been horrified at how expensive Demerara sugar was in Toronto. Silky was aware that her mind was wandering skittering over mundane things to avoid thinking about Morgan. The Jamaican police hadn't found him. It was horrible not knowing whether she would or should be grieving or not. She stood up and walked over to the kitchen window, leaned out to look at the pear tree just outside. The moist heat of the summer past had been good for the tree, In the crisp fall air, its branches drooped with heavy fruit. The pears looked like the bodies of plump, freckled green women. Through the leaves of the tree, the sun cast pale disks of gold onto the pears. The autumn light was muted as though everything were underwater. 
If she stretched a little, Silky could touch one or two of the pears, stroke their smooth skin. Many of them were about to ripen. Soon she'd be able to pluck sustenance from the watery air. The pear tree was the main reason that Silky had persuaded Morgan that they should buy this little old house with the silverfish living in the cracks. Besides, it was what they could afford. What with Morgan only doing casual work at the car parts plant. He was angling for full time, but until then her job as a research assistant for the Ministry of State just barely brought in enough to keep them both going. Morgan had been fed up of never having enough money, and he thought he'd found a quick way to make his fortune back home. He wouldn't tell her about it, had wanted to surprise her. He'd flown to Jamaica where Silky had had one phone call from him. His plans were going well. It looked like his hunch was going to pan out. Then he disappeared. The cold air through the kitchen window was making her eyes water. When they were children, Silky and Morgan used to fly with their parents to Caspar Grande Island off the coast of Trinidad to spend the summer holidays there. That was before it became a fancy resort. At the time, there were only a few rambling cottages in the small house where the caretaker lived with his old dog. Silky and her brother would dig sea cockroach barnacles out of the rocks for bait then fish all morning for little yellow grunts, mimicking the fish's croaking sounds as they pulled them up out of the water. They would take their catch for their mother to gut. The rest of the day, the island was theirs to roam. They would climb sweet-sop trees for the green-skinned, bumpy fruit, sucking out the sweet, milky pulp and spitting the black seeds at each other. During these holidays, Silky felt she could want for no other food, need no other air to breathe. She remembered her mother diving from the jetty into the dark water, circling down past the parrotfish and the long-snouted garfish until Silky could barely make her out, her plump body shimmering greenish in the deep water. She seemed to stay under forever, and it scared Silky and Morgan. But Daddy would simply smile. Is by the riverside I first met your mother. She was in the water swimming like some kind of manatee. Mama Joe woman, mermaid woman. <laughs> happy in the sea, happy in the river, he laughed. What a man your daddy must be, huh? To make a fair maid from the river consent to come and live on dry land with him, huh? The children wouldn't be reassured, though, until she burst to the surface again, not even winded. Their mother had tried to teach them both to swim, but the sight of her sinking into the black water appalled them. Morgan refused to be coaxed in any deeper than the shallows, and Silky remembered him shaking his head no, how the sunlight would make diamonds of the water flying from his tight peppercorn curls. For herself, she had loved the feeling of body surfing, but wouldn't put her whole head under the water. 
She'd stick her face in just far enough to be able to see the grunts flit by. She never learned to dive beneath the surface the way her mother did. Just try to go deeper now, sweetheart, Mummy would say, undulating her arms to show her how to stroke through the water. You and Morgan can both do it. You're my children. I'm right here. I won't let anything happen to you. But Silky hadn't wanted to be swallowed up by that dark wetness. She had another dream that night. In it, she survived the flood from the previous nightmare. She was swimming on the surface above the drowned lands. Bloated corpses bumped her from time to time. The horror made her skin prickle. She put her face into the water to inspect the damage below her. She could see submerged rows, tiny fish nibbling at dissolving lumps of flesh. A sea anemone already blossoming on a disintegrated carcass that had sunk to the seabed. The sea gave a greenish cast to the rotting flesh of the drowned people. In the rigor of death, a man clutched at a slab of coral the size of a dinner table. The coral glowed reddish gold in the flickering water. The man's face was turned up towards her. His dying gasps for air had contorted it into a ghastly scream. Watery light glistened off his teeth, turning them to gleaming coins. Silky was terrified. Just then, a freak wave rose and slammed her down into the depths, tossing her against the drowned man. The current rearranged his features. It was Morgan. His eyes opened, and he reached a beseeching hand out to his sister. She couldn't stop herself. She screamed. She expected the brine to flood her lungs, burning them, filling them like sponges, but it entered her body slowly, sweet and sustaining like a breath of air. In disbelief, she heaved, trying to expel the liquid from her stomach. She woke in terror, blowing hard. She was lying in bed, a few strands of her hair crushed between her face and the pillow. Some of it had worked its way into her mouth. The hair tasted brackish as the sea, as though she'd been crying in her sleep. Silky lay shivering under the icy sheets, trying to get rid of the image of herself drowned, swollen, full of salty water. She was afraid that if she hadn't woken up, the sea would have changed her, rotting the flesh of her dream hands and feet into corrupt parodies of flukes, while eels snapped at her melting flesh. Her Mama Joe mother could live in the sea like a mermaid, but she could not. The pears were ripe. Silky climbed the tree with a basket hooked over one shoulder, a long scarf inside it. She wedged the basket into a crook of the tree so that she would have her hands free to pick. Shards of golden sunlight struck her eyes. She looked down. A light breeze was rippling the grass in the waves. She was sailing on a green sea. When they were children, 
She and Morgan would climb the Julie Mango tree in the back of the house and pretend that they were old-time pirates, scaling the mast to spy out ships to plunder. Other little boys in Mona Heights had cap guns. Morgan had a plastic sword. He used to jab Silky with it, until that time when she punched him and broke his nose. <laughs> Grampy had been so mad at her. As she reminisced, Silky picked a fat golden pear, but with a liquid sound, it collapsed in her hand, rotted from within. Ugh, nasty. She flicked the soggy mush off her fingers and then wiped her hands on her jeans. After Mummy and Daddy died, the children's grandfather came from Spanish town to take care of them. He was the one who had told them the story about Jackson a man who had lived just outside Spanish Town in the 1600s. People hadn't known it at the time, but Jackson had been a carpenter turned pirate. He was a greedy man. He had drugged the crew and doped rum and scuttled their ship at sea while they were still in it. He had drowned his mates so that he could retire rich with their booty. Guilt drove Jackson crazy, Grampy told them. The ghosts of the drowned pirates called from their grave in the sea and asked the river spirit for her help. They said she could have had their goal if she gave them revenge. River Mumma loves shiny things. She agreed she would come to Jackson at night as he tossed and turned in his bed. He could hear the river whispering in his ear that he was a murderer and a thief. River Mooma told him she would have a revenge and she would have his gold. Jackson was afraid, but he was more greedy than scared. He wasn't going to let her have the doubloons. He used his carpenter skills to make a huge table of heavy Jamaican mahogany. Then he nailed every last gold coin onto it, hid it in his cellar. He stopped bathing, stopped talking to his neighbors, stayed in his house all the time. Then what happened? Silky had whispered, holding tight to Morgan's sleeve for reassurance. He looked just as scared as she. Jackson didn't even notice the heavy rains that year. It rained so hard that the Rio Cobra River that ran beside his property swelled up big. He was in his cellar, admiring his gold when the Rio Cobra broke its banks and gouged a new course for itself right through his home. The house was demolished. River Mooma sent the water for him, Grampy said. The last thing the neighbors saw was a big golden table rising to the surface of the rushing water. He floated for 12 seconds with Jackson clinging to it. Then it sank. If he had let go, they might have been able to save him, but he refused to leave his treasure. What happened to the table? Morgan had asked. He was 11, and already he had a taste for money. Grampy was looking after his two orphans as best he could, but things were tight. No one ever fetched the golden table out of the Rio Cobra, 
They say that at the stroke of noon every day, it rises to the top of the water and it floats for exactly 12 seconds. Then it sinks again, dragging anything else in the water down with it. Silky's basket was full. She tied the scarf around the handle and lowered it to the ground, climbing down after it. She lugged it inside the house. Morgan loved pears. She would make preserves from them, stew them in her precious demerara sugar to keep them until he returned. The Jamaican police had sent her Morgan's effects. Some clothes, a letter he hadn't mailed. She put the letter with the month's stack of bills on the bookshelf. At least the insurance was covering Morgan's half of the mortgage payments. Morgan used to say to her, back home, they tell you that when you come up to Canada, it's going to be easy, not like Jamaica, that you'll be able to reach your hand out and pull money from the trees. Money will just fall into your lap like fruit. I wonder where my money tree is, he said. He had explained his plan to her in his unmailed letter. He had gone back to Jamaica to look for the golden table. I think I can really find it, Silky. The Rio Cobre has altered its course twice since the pirate Jackson had built his home beside it. Once when he drowned with his treasure, and once more when they built the irrigation works in the 1800s. The works have drained off so much water onto the plain that you can actually walk on parts of the riverbed in the dry season. That's when I'm going to go looking for that golden table. I can dig late at night when nobody will see me. I even know the spot where the old people say it is. It's a deep sinkhole that doesn't dry up until the height of the dry season. No one looks for the table, you know. They're afraid. People out here still tell stories about a plantation owner way, way back who tried to have his slaves pull the table out of the water when it rose at noon. Six men drowned that day and 12 yokes of oxen dragged under when the table sank to the bottom again. Suppose it's really there, all that gold. It's almost dry season now, just a few more weeks, and maybe coming home rich. See you soon. 
If Silky had known what Morgan had been up to, she would have talked him out of it. When they were children, her mother had made it clear that she was to look out for her younger brother. You are the eldest one, Silky, and a girl to boot, so you have to have more sense. <laughs> that boy's so full of mischief, always getting himself in deep water. You have to be ready to pull him out. Your daddy and I won't always be around, you know. Silky had resented the burden placed on her. She loved Morgan, but at the time, she'd been a child too, just like him. Why did she have to take care of him? Isn't that what her parents were for? After her parents were killed in the car crash, Silky sometimes wondered if her mother had known that they wouldn't be around to see their children into adulthood. Like Silky, Mummy used to dream things, and if Mummy had known that, had she also known how to save Morgan? Did she die before she could tell her daughter what to do? Silky had another dream. Morgan was standing beside her on the bank of the Rio Cobre. He put an arm around her shoulders to draw her close and pointed into the murky water. It's time, he said. Look into the water, Silky. No, bend your head like so, quickly. Twelve seconds, and it gone. See it? Rising towards us through the river water. That big round of pure gold, that tabletop, shimmering like the promise of heaven, getting bigger, coming closer. Four, three, two, Gone again, sunk back into the depths of the river. You can't take it out, you know. The spirits drag you down. If I jump in, Silky, will you pull me out? I can't swim. She didn't answer him. Just stared down into the roiling water that would melt her flesh and change her if she went into it. Morgan had been staying with a cousin in Spanish town. Leone and her husband, Brian. In a phone call, Leone told Silky that Morgan had started going out late at night, returning while it was still dark. Leone had surprised him, coming in at four o'clock one morning. He was laughing softly to himself, and she could smell stale sweat on him like he'd been doing hard labor. When he saw her, he hid a pouch of some kind behind his back, scowled at her, and went into his room. She had heard the key turn in the lock. After that, he kept to himself. He took a knapsack with him when he left the house in the evening. Sometimes they saw him when he brought the knapsack back, late at night, bulging with whatever was inside it. He cradled it to his body like a lover. He stayed in his room during the days, but they knew when he was in the house by the reek of sweat that followed him. Morgan had stopped using the shower, muttered that he didn't want the water to wash him away, then had tried to pass it off as a joke. They had been afraid he was going mad. A few days later, a tropical storm hit Jamaica hard. The Rio Cobre swelled its banks again, and by morning, Leone's house was flooded knee-deep in water. She and Brian knew they had to leave the house until the storm was over. 
They had called for Morgan through the bedroom door, but there was no answer. And finally, Brian broke the door down. The room was empty. All they found were his clothes and his knapsack with a few waterlogged splinters of wood inside it. The police told Leone that Morgan had probably used it to carry marijuana. They assumed it was a dope deal, gone bad, and they expected to find his body at any time, shot and dumped somewhere. In Toronto, fall went by and winter settled in, gelid and sullen. Silky stuffed towels into the house's old cracks to keep the wind out. She moped, barely able to drag herself through work every day. Her colleagues tiptoed around her, speaking quietly. She overheard her boss whispering to another manager over the coffee machine, brother, and drugs. She didn't care. All she could think about was Morgan. Her body felt heavy, earthbound. She started taking long, hot baths in the evenings, soaking in the deep old claw-footed tub in the darkened bathroom. The water and the dark soothed her, sank into her bones. It felt as though she could float away on the water like an otter buoyed up from the sorrow that was weighing her down. One evening, face bathed in tears, Silky decided to give her body to the water. She let herself sink completely under the surface of the bath. She held her breath for a long time, feeling at peace, listening to the whispering of the water. Then she inhaled it. It burned into her lungs, but she fought her body's thrashing and stayed under. Strangely, the pain in her chest soon stopped. It seemed like she stayed submerged for a long time, waiting for death. But nothing happened. She sat up in the tub and warm water drained harmlessly from her mouth and nose. She felt a curious contentment. She got out of the bath and went to bed. For the first time since Morgan's disappearance, sleep felt like a benediction. Silky didn't really notice spring come and go. She had no more dreams of Morgan. She started smiling at work again, even went out for drinks one evening with a couple of the women from the office. She drank only water all night, though, glass after glass, until her friends teased her that she would burst. But she was feeling so dry. It had been hours since her last soak in the tub. She dipped a napkin in her glass and dabbed it on her chest and arms. The first thing she did when she got home was to have a long bath, reveling in the feel of water on her skin. She was amazed when she looked out the kitchen window one Sunday afternoon and saw that the pear tree was in full leaf, tender, bright green leaves dancing like tiny fish in the balmy air currents. It was late May. Nine months since Morgan had disappeared. In that time, Silky had birthed herself again. 
After her failed attempt at suicide, the odd sense of peace had stayed with her. She still grieved for her brother, but no longer felt as though she would die from the pain. In fact, she felt almost invulnerable, as though she could swim through the air or breathe in water. Silky looked at herself in her bedroom mirror that Sunday afternoon, wondering if the change in her was apparent on her face. Over the winter, she'd become as portly as her mother had been. She actually found the plump curves of her new full pear shape pleasing, but she was feeling the effects of nine months of inactivity. It's spring, Morgan, Silky said to the air. Time to get into shape. No time like the present. She grabbed workout gear and a bathing suit and walked over to the YMCA. She tried the weight room, but after a few painful contortions on the Nautilus machines, she decided to go to the pool instead. It had been years, but she was sure that she'd remember her mother's lessons. It was five minutes to midday. The noon public swim was just about to start. Silky wrinkled her nose at the smell of chlorine. The space rang with the laughter of children, sleek and plump as seals as they splashed in the water or raced around the pool deck. She went to the three lanes roped off for doing laps. An old woman moved with slow grace through the water, blowing like a walrus when she came to the turns. Feeling a little nervous, Silky eased herself in. She did the breaststroke so that she could keep her head out of the water. After a few laps, she settled into the rhythm of lane swimming. She no longer heard the noise of the children playing. She kept swimming, always a few feet behind the old woman who seemed tireless. As usual, her thoughts turned to her lost brother. Silky believed that Morgan had found the golden table. She believed that by night he pried the doubloons out of the rotten wood and brought them back bit by bit to Leone's house. But the money was not his to take. River Muma had claimed it. Grandpappy used to say, want all, lose all. Silky believed that because Morgan stole that treasure, River Muma had stolen away his wits, made him afraid of the water, and when he still wouldn't return the gold... She came to get it herself and took him into the water as punishment, the way she had done with the pirate Jackson before him. The summer sun shot rays of light through the windows to the pool deck. The light refracted in the blue water, flickering so that Silky couldn't see below the surface of the pool. With one hand, she shaded her eyes from the glare. It was noon, the time the golden table rises up from the bed of the Rio Cobre. Ahead of Silky, the old woman stopped, treading water until Silky drew level with her. The woman's skin was brown, and her eyes were like those of Silky's mother. The old woman smiled at her. He always getting into deep water, she said. Stubborn, greedy boy, but he's my son from your mama, Joe mother, and so 
let you pull him out. You have to dive though. You're changed enough to do it now, but hurry, daughter's daughter, only six seconds left. The glare brightened until Silky could no longer see River Muma. The light seemed to be coming from beneath her now. She felt her heart slamming in her chest, beating the seconds away. The water was rushing and swirling around her. The river had found her. Looking down into it, Silky saw a great golden disc glowing as it rose to the surface. She was dimly aware of the squeals of alarm all around her, people clamoring out of the pool, the lifeguard shouting, Get out! Everybody out of the water! She could see Morgan clinging stubbornly to the golden table, refusing to relinquish all that gold. If she gave herself to the water, would she become a Mama Jo like her mother? No time for doubt, Silky dove, inhaling as she went. The Rio Cobra's waters bubbled and cool as sweet as air into her lungs. She was truly her mother's daughter. Morgan was closer now. She could see his upturned face, but couldn't read his expression. Would she be able to pluck Morgan from the table like fruit from a tree? Or would his need suck them both down to drown and rot in the green, greedy depths? Breathing in the strength of the river, she swam down with strong strokes to get her brother. Justin Thomas, y'all. Thank you, Justin. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming the unbelievably talented Nalo Hopkinson. What a story. Thank you. Are, you're not an only child. No, I have a brother. You have a brother. Oh. He mostly keeps himself out of trouble, but I'm ready. <laughs> and is he your younger brother? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> He's six years younger. And does he not swim still? Well, he's not Morgan, so I remember the day... Um, we were at a, a friend's house, a um, friend of my mother's, and they had a big pool. Um, and my brother, who couldn't swim, jumped in to the deep end uh, because he decided that was the day he was going to learn to swim. So he's brave, but not necessarily bright. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to hear this. <laughs> so nobody else saw they were partying, and I couldn't swim very well, but I sort of followed him along the outside ready. 
And he made it to the other end of the pool. He did. Love my brother. He did. <laughs> he, and you, you loved him because you didn't have to jump in after him. Yeah, there's yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is that kind of the dynamic that you and he have played out over the course of your lives? That you're always there to rescue him, but he sort of pulls himself out of it by the grace of God. That, that might be true. Uh, <laughs> sometimes he rescues me. And sometimes he rescues you. Yeah. 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 There's nothing like Sib love, is there? Yeah, I wanted to write something. So often when we read fiction, the stories of love are, are romantic. Yeah. It's beautiful and haunting. You combine a lot of, uh, of elements into your, your writing. Um, science fiction, there's some horror in there, but you, you don't like scary movies. No, can't, can't deal with can't. scary movies. <laughs> the the uh, video for Michael Jackson's thriller was a little much. <laughs> True. Wow. Yeah. Nalo. <laughs> That may be TMI, girl. (laughs) (laughs) But you have no problem writing it. No, no, it's... How do you separate? There's a... I think my friend Tanana Reeve is in the the house, and she's a horror writer, and there's an element almost of the funny in it. Yeah, there's... It's not funny, ha-ha. It's Mm -hmm. funny the universe is laughing at you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And... There's a certain way in which it, it's possible to enjoy that. Besides, I know what's coming next, so... You know, so you're not scared. <laughs> no, no jump scares, no jump scares in, for me. Uh, what is up next? Do you write longhand? Um, Sometimes, if I'm stuck, I switch into longhand because uh-huh. it, it breaks the brain out to the... Yep. Um, Gets the brain to work in, yeah, in another, yeah, yeah. Yeah. another way. Yeah. I have two projects... One is um, a novel of my own that needs yet another damn rewrite. Uh, it's an alternate history fantasy set in the Caribbean. Mm. And the other is I'm writing uh, one of the serialized graphic novels for the reboot of Sandman. <sighs> yes. Yes. You heard it here first, y'all. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Neil Gaiman has created a new house in The Dreaming. It is run by Elzuli, who is a version of the River Mama you just read about. And I'm writing her. Nice. <laughs> when, did you, when did you know you were a writer, that that was your identity, Nalo? Um, I was, like you, a reader from, from very young. Um, my father was the writer. So... He was a man of letters. Yes, very mm-hmm. much so. Um, actor, writer, poet, playwright, mm. uh, teacher. So it, d- writing felt like something daddy's did and daddy's mm. friends did, not necessarily something daddy's daughter did. Mm-hmm. Um, so he never actually got to see any of my writing. It, it felt like I couldn't get out from under. Wow. But once I did start and once I was starting to get published and um, this community of, of Caribbean writers um, that I'd grown up with, who were sort of my literary aunties and uncles, um, have been from the beginning very supportive. Uh, people like Lillian Allen who said, you write in? I said, yes. You send in any of it out? And I thought, you send your work out? I guess you have to send your work out. If you want somebody <laughs> to read it. 
<laughs> yeah. So uh, I was quite old. My my first short story was published when I go to Clary in '98. So that would 27, 28 years old. Yeah. So it's never too late to start. <laughs> you hear that? It's never too late to start. Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is Julia Smith, the best in the business, y'all, with help from Audrey No. Music provided by Justin Thomas on The Vibes. You can follow him on Instagram at JT Vibraphone for his music videos and dates for upcoming shows. Thank you, as always, to the very inundated Matt Gorley and my great thanks to Nalo Hopkinson for allowing me to read her story. You can find it in her collection entitled Skin Folk. And if you want more Nalo, she's got several novels and collections of short fiction, and you can find them all at nalohopkinson.com. If you love the show and you want to help other people find it, give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. And while you're leaving a review, please do suggest a story for me to read on the podcast. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Jenny Radelat. I'm LeVar Burton, and you can find me on Twitter at LeVar Burton and LeVar.Burton on Instagram. I'll see you next time, but you don't have to take my word for it. Stitcher. Hey y'all, I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And our show, Unladylike, is back with a brand new season of episodes finding out what happens when women break the rules. We're talking about the big rules, like motherhood. Do you ever feel like a bad mom? When I'm really excited to take my kid to school. <laughs> and maybe the smaller ones, like why it's so freaking hard to get dressed for work. Especially as a, a plus-size woman, you either end up wearing really oversized, uncomfortable formal wear, or you dress hyper-feminine. And we're kicking it all off by swiping right with comedian Nicole Byer. Like, I met this guy. He's like, what do you do? And I was like, I'm a teacher. He was like, where? And I was like, a school in L.A. <laughs> but I'm sure he'll be surprised one day when he turns on his TV and he's like, that teacher is doing well. <laughs> Find that episode now and be the first to hear all the rest of them by subscribing to Unladylike wherever you get your podcasts. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not.